podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm excited to be joined again by Kristen Flannery, a writer, keynote speaker, and patient advocate known globally by her social media persona, Lady Glockenflecken. Kristen joined us for a very popular episode two years ago, along with her husband, Dr. Will Flannery, more popularly known as Dr. Glockenflecken, an ophthalmologist by day, internet comedian by night, and one might say all the time, and two-time testicular cancer survivor. By the time the Flannerys were 35, Will had survived cancer twice, along with a sudden cardiac arrest. Throughout these traumatic experiences, Kristen took on the role of caregiver, and in at least one memorable case, she was also his lifeline. Between her experience marrying into medicine, caring for a partner with a life-altering diagnosis, and her background in social psychology and cognitive neuroscience, Kristen brings a unique array of perspectives and insight to the cancer advocacy table. Today, we are delighted to welcome her back to share more about being a caregiver, the challenges of navigating American healthcare, and why cancer advocacy is so vital. Welcome back to your stories, Kristen. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Always good to talk to you. Likewise. I was going to ask, just to start off and, and sort of ground us geographically, one of the things I love about you and Will and have loved to watch is you often will travel for speaking engagements. I think you actually have some comedy clubs coming up, which is wonderful and very fitting for your brand of humor. But where in the world is Kristen Flannery right now? Today, I'm actually at home, Portland, Oregon. I know it doesn't get to happen that often in the fall. I had the delightful experience of, of meeting you and your family in Portland earlier this year, truly one of the highlights of my year. And it's wonderful to see you again, even if virtually. Now, Although I presume that the vast majority of our audience will know you and will know of Will and will know your story, just for those who haven't, and I hope this isn't too traumatic to revisit, could you perhaps recap for us your experience on the night in May of 2020 when Will went into cardiac arrest, the chain of events that ensued? I mean, it's going to sound like maybe even a, a silly question, but like, what was going through your mind at the time? And then... How does that change the trajectory of your life, including your life with Will? Yeah, so May of 2020, right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic lockdowns. So it was a scary time already to begin with. He, by that time, was already a two-time testicular cancer survivor. But the night after Mother's Day, I like to say he gave me the worst Mother's Day present ever by going into cardiac arrest in his sleep that night. So. I woke up to what I later learned were his agonal breaths. I'm not in medicine, so I didn't know anything about what those are or what it sounds like. But, you know, I was being woken from a deep sleep, so I just thought he was snoring. That's what it sounded like. But then, like, the longer it went on, he wasn't responding to, like, me trying to shove him and, you know, make him turn over and stop snoring or whatever. And then they started taking on a little more of, of an urgent quality to the sound of it. He started making some weird gasping, you know, for people who've seen it before. I'm sure that's just pretty standard. But for me, I had never encountered anything like that. So that was really alarming. And he wasn't responding or waking up, obviously. And so I called 911 and the dispatcher, her name was 
Lisa and I got to meet her later and give her a big hug because she's the one that recognized what was going on. I had no idea. You know, it was May 2020 and he was making respiratory sounds. So of course I thought COVID, that's where my mind was. And she told me to do CPR and I was just like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Like it took a second for it to kind of sink in that if I'm doing CPR, that means that his heart's not working. (laughs) And he'd never had any sort of heart history or family history or anything like that. So just was nowhere on the radar for possibility. But she walked me through it and told me what to do and counted with me every step of the way. And and it was 10 minutes of doing that. And then the paramedics came and, and took it from there. But yeah, it was a very intense 10 minutes that ended up sort of changing the trajectory of our lives, as you alluded to. Well, thank you for sharing that. Again, I, I hope it wasn't painful. I only ask because I've heard you, of course, speak openly about it before. Again, having met you guys in person now, I appreciate that there's a slight difference in physical stature between you and your husband. <laughs> in all seriousness, I mean, had you had, and you're always so self-effacing too, but had you had CPR training in any capacity before then? I had taken one set of CPR classes way back, uh, probably 15 years ago for like an after-school job in college where I had to to do that. But you know, it's you learn on the dummies. And it was so long ago, too, that luckily it's not a complicated maneuver. But where I feel like I was saved by Lisa and he was saved by Lisa is that I didn't remember when to do it. You know, I didn't know that it was required in that scenario. You think of the sort of classic someone clutches their chest and falls down and then you do CPR. But waking up in your sleep and your husband's making weird sounds, that doesn't ring that bell in my brain, you know, so... So I I had had it you know once before, but she gave me instructions just to to refresh, and I couldn't move him because, as you mentioned, he's much larger than me. He's six four, and I'm five two, so that was tricky. And then I had had a cervical disc replacement a few months before that I was still kind of recovering from, and I'm hypermobile, like symptomatically hypermobile. So already my body doesn't work correctly, <laughs> and so. I just didn't have any confidence in myself that I could get him off the bed without like slamming his head into the nightstand or something and like causing further damage. So we just had to do it on the bed. But thankfully, because I'm hypermobile, we have a very firm mattress. So, you know, it worked out. And you also have this chronic illness paradigm. And you just said yourself, I mean, you have a connective tissue disorder that you have to contend with. I suspect it's underrecognized by many people. And, And then, you know, Will's had cancer twice. And so I'm just curious in the context of a specifically a cancer themed podcast, did you find that people supported slash reacted to your family differently between the the cancer experiences and then this whole CPR slash cardiac arrest experience? Yeah. So there's a lot to say about that. So one thing was an age difference, a phase of life difference. So when he had cancer, we were still in his medical training years. And so the first time was in medical school for him. And the second time he was in residency, we were away from any kind of family. And you're in these temporary locations where you do make friends and and whatnot, but your really deeply rooted support network is not there. And on top of that, especially in med school, you know, it was a bunch of 20 something year olds, right? That were our network. So I think people didn't really They were fabulous, but I think, you know, there was no guidebook and no precedent that anyone had ever encountered before. It was everyone's first experience 
with a friend getting cancer. So we were all kind of figuring it out together. They would do things like we had a baby at the time. So they would come over and take care of the baby so that I could take him to appointments, things like that. The cardiac arrest was more dramatic, I would say. (laughs) And the stakes felt higher because it was just more of an acute, serious, critical illness. We didn't know at first if he would survive. And then when we did, we didn't know if he would know who he was or remember us or what kind of state he would be in cognitively. There were a few days there where we were just really uncertain about all of those things. And then after he came home, his behavior was different. You know, they have like short-term amnesia for a little while. So it was kind of like 50 first dates living with him for the first few days and weeks. I wrote down every day what had happened to him and what he had to do today because it was changing by the day at that point. Like you take this medication or you do this thing. And so every day he had on his nightstand my little letter to him of what had happened and what he should do. And there's all these things like that that happened. And, And that was just like a little bit more visible to people, I think. And it seemed a little more urgent and and serious. And so they we had the meal train. And again, these are like the people that he worked with. We were still fairly new to our location. We moved here 2017 in the summer. And that was so almost three years that we had been living here. Not that long. And it was COVID. And it was COVID. And yeah, and despite all of that, so many people left food at our door and notes and gifts for the kids because they were five and eight at the time. They brought them like things to keep them busy and things to do and and comfort items, you know, and it was just so sweet. Uh, Our younger daughter's preschool teachers came by and sat on the patio with her and, you know, it was all social distance and stuff, but they came over to help out for a little while. So it was really, really lovely. And I think those really dramatic hard times, people can be really good at that stuff. Like we know the script, you know, you bring the food, you help them with their errands. But then eventually the person comes home or the person recovers and then all that kind of slowly goes away. And that was certainly the case with the cancer. Because it was testicular cancer, I hate this term, but that's one of the good, quote, good kinds of cancer, which just means that it's very treatable and survivable. And that is excellent. And we were very fortunate that that's the case. However, there's nothing good about that experience. I mean, it's still a very traumatic. West bad. Yes, right. Like it's not as life-threatening. It still can be life-threatening if it gets out of hand. So that one, it sort of felt like, well, yeah, he had this scary thing, but now that's over. And so everybody just sort of moves on. And then especially the second time he got it, it required hormone replacement therapy and a whole different set of things because he could no longer produce his own testosterone. We could no longer have biological children. You know, there were just all these other implications. And I think that piece is either people feel like it's too personal and you should just leave the family to deal with it as they need to. And I understand that. Or people think, you know, well, it happened, but now it's over and they don't necessarily realize that the implications of that continue. So in our case in particular, you know, we talk about the first cancer, the second cancer, the cardiac arrest, and not surprisingly, sounds ridiculous when you say it all together like that. Not surprisingly, cardiac arrest gets all the attention. And it was a huge event. And I do speak a lot about the implications of that. But the second 
each cancer. The first time it was like, hey, we're in our 20s. This is not supposed to be happening at this stage of life, you know, and that's a whole mindset adjustment. And then the second time we are still dealing with that one. It's so hormones are hard, you know, and so we're still trying to figure out the right dose and delivery method and all of that stuff for his particular body. And because his particular body doesn't really align very well with all of the charts and statistics and whatnot, the insurance companies really don't want to pay for what he actually needs. So it's battling them. But, you know, even more profoundly, I think, is it changes who the person is to not have your hormones in stable places all the time. And so there is this, you know, emotional and family dynamic that's affected and has continued to be affected seven years later. Here we still are. So I think those are the pieces that are not as widely discussed or spotlighted. Well, there's so much I could say in response. I think one thing I'll say to you and Will as a couple is one of the reasons I think I feel such a kinship to you both is when my wife and I took our wedding vows, as I suspect you did, we promised to love each other in sickness and in health. And we were in our 20s and we didn't really know what that meant. And then here we are being forced to confront serious illness seemingly ahead of schedule. So that, that's one part of it. And yes, young people can get very, very sick. And I think that in some ways almost offends our sense of the natural order of things. The other thing I wanted to comment on was you know, the different experiences you had with the acuity and the visibility of the cardiac arrest versus the cancer experience. And here I'm going to go even farther back to my own family. As you know, I mean, the reason I went into oncology is I lost my father when I was 14, he was 49. And it was fascinating to me to watch how people reacted to my dad. On the one hand, it was actually weirdly a good thing that he lost his hair with chemotherapy because he was so self-effacing and so private that that was really the only way a lot of people knew that he was sick. And that was kind of a natural trigger to get some support. On the other hand, I had the experience of him almost coming across as contagious to others in the sense that people kept their distance, stayed away. I like to think that that was out of respect. Oh, they need more time and rest and such. But it was profoundly isolating. You know, it was just my mom and I, I'm an only child, and then my father who was sick. And Frankly, we could have used more support, not less. So on that note, as a practical tip, I wonder if you'll agree with me, and you've actually already alluded to this today. I think rather than asking a family like yours or, or mine, what can I do? I think it's actually helpful to be like, hey, I'm planning to bring over a casserole on this night, or can I help babysit on, on this night? And I think being that concrete and specific is super, super helpful. I think that's key. Yeah, because if you're asking someone, even if it's well-intentioned, and it always is, if you're asking someone, what can I do for you? You're also now giving them a task. You're giving them more work to do, to try to come up with something for you to do. And so, yeah, just think about what do you need done around your house? They probably need the same things done around their house. So just, you know, do that. Great advice. Absolutely great advice. And it's interesting. Again, I was a fairly lonely kid, and that's not a sob story, but I, I vividly remember some friends of my parents taking me out to a movie in bowling. It probably felt like a very mundane evening to everyone else. I thought it was fantastic. It was really a, getting back to a, a brief glimpse of normalcy. On a happier, more comedic note, I am absolutely fascinated with the way that you and Will both have crafted um, online persona. And so I'm just curious, what was the catalyst for creating those avatars, if you will? And this is going to sound weird. How does internet comedy 
helps you guys deal with really serious medical conditions. <laughs> yeah. So how that started was Will had a stand-up comedy hobby all the way back into high school. I mean, even before that, he was the class clown in elementary school. You know, I mean, he was just always cutting up and, and making smart comments, we'll call them. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so he just has always been a comedian at heart and found an outlet for that in various ways. And in med school, obviously it was, he still did stand up into college, but then med school got a little too busy. We were in school, plus we got married, we had our first baby, so it was just busy. And then in residency though, he started writing for the Gomer blog, which I think a lot of people might remember, but for those who don't, it was kind of like The Onion, but for medical professionals. And it was like a blog website and, and you'd write these articles. They were always very funny. And so he applied to write for that and got accepted. And, and as part of writing for that, everyone had to come up with a pseudonym. And, you know, it's a medical website, so it's a medically related pseudonym usually. And so he was in residency for ophthalmology. So he just thought, well, what's the funniest word I can think of within ophthalmology? And that's what he picked. We're still stuck with it. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, he picked such a marketable name. It's like the opto equivalent of Jabberwocky. You know, it's just, a, it sounds funny. It does. Yes. That, and that's exactly why he went for it. Cause it just sounds like, you know, like you're coughing as you're saying it. So, you know, I think if we had known where this was going to go, perhaps we would have thought a little harder about what that name might be, but it's memorable anyway, even if it's unpronounceable. So that's how that started. And then I got on board because he started using Twitter as sort of a testing ground for jokes he could incorporate or, or directions he could go in these Gomer blog articles. And so it was a little bit like stand-up comedy, but just online. Just a quick joke. See how people react to it. Is it funny? Is it not? What comes up, you know, in their responses? And where can you take those things? And kind of use that to improve his articles. But then Twitter started becoming even bigger <laughs> for him than the articles did. And so eventually he just kind of transitioned over there and he would just be sitting in corner of the house or whatever on his phone and just like giggling his phone all the time. And I would try to say, what's funny? I want to know what's funny. And he would tell me, but of course I don't understand most of the medical jargon and I didn't know the cast of characters that he was interacting with all the time, you know, because you did back then, Med Twitter in particular, you really got to know the other people, even if you didn't know their real names or what their faces look like. You know, it's the same people kind of coming back day after day and you get to know everybody's personalities and, and things. And so I thought, well, if he's really having a good time over there, we are still busy. We're raising kids. He's working. I'm working, doing all the things. So if I'm going to spend any time with him, I think I have to get on Twitter. And so... <laughs> <laughs> So I did. And so when coming up with what my handle was going to be, I, he was Dr. Glockenflecken. So I went with Lady Glockenflecken. And it was mostly just to see what he was laughing about all the time, but also some light roasting when appropriate. I thought, take him down a couple pegs so his head didn't get too big. And that was really fun. Our marriages are more alike than you know, Kristen. Yes, uh, this is all very resonant to me. I love it. That's how that started. And then uh, when the cardiac arrest happened in particular, then we, we kind of added advocacy into it as well as the, the comedy. So that's kind of been the evolution. You guys have done a great job, I think, of, I've often said you, you guys use comedy as a Trojan horse. You tend to sneak in very serious messaging 
in things that are actually legitimately funny. I think that's very, very hard to do. I think it's an art and I think you both do it very, very well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's the sugar in the medicine, right? Like if you can get people to see it through a humorous lens, they are much more receptive to the message you're trying to get across, but also to thinking about how they feel about it themselves and really internalizing it themselves. So it's actually a very powerful educational tool, a very powerful advocacy tool. Yeah, it gets people's guards down, gets them in a good mood. You're on the same team, you're laughing together, and then boom, you hit them with, you know, whatever the punchline is, which is your takeaway. So it's been really powerful. I think people see laughter as not as multidimensional as it is, right? I think that, yes, it sometimes can mean flippancy and silliness, and it shows that you're not taking something very seriously. That is one aspect of it, but there are other ways to use humor and there are other things that laughter expresses. And one of those is release of tension. And my God, where else is there more tension than in something like cancer? Like you need those moments of release and laughter is a really, I think, socially powerful and just evolutionarily powerful mechanism that we have to it's our little release valve. Yeah, it's, it's cathartic. It's unifying. It's all. It's a great vehicle. So your specific professional advocacy work involves changing how healthcare workers see not just their patients, but this is the other reason I was so excited to talk to you. No offense to your husband, but to talk to you, Kristen, is change how we see caregivers. So what do you want the oncology professionals who might listen to this? How do you want them to think about caregivers? I think that First of all, caveat, of course, every patient and their family are unique and they have their own dynamic. And so use your judgment when you see that this dynamic may not apply. Okay, but in general, I think that if someone is someone's caregiver, that means those two people are very intimately attached in some way. Maybe it's a parent child, maybe it's spouses, maybe it's siblings, maybe it's just friends who care for each other very deeply. But that means that their two lives are very intertwined. And whatever happens in the life of one of them really deeply affects the life of the other one. And in the case of someone who is a spouse or a parent, someone who's in the same family as this person, that's on a logistical level, on a practical level. And it's also on an emotional level and psychological level. I mean, it's multifaceted, but everything that happens to that patient is also happening to that person's person, whoever it is. You know, some things are happening more to the patient than to the caregiver, but other things are happening more to the caregiver than to the patient. And I'll use the cardiac arrest as an example because it's a very, an extreme example, but it illustrates the point that he will never remember having that cardiac arrest and he will never remember the two or three days after that before he was fully conscious again. And I will never forget. So it's a family. It's a dynamic. It's a unit. It's not just one person. You're just treating one branch of that unit. And I think often caregivers are at worst just left out of the equation altogether, just sort of overlooked and not out of any malice or anything, but just, you know, there's nothing in the system where we slot in and fit for support. But, you know, even at best, we might be seen as a part of the care team. And that is an improvement over being overlooked. And it is certainly true that we are part of the care team and they should definitely see us that way because who's taking care of that person when they're not in your office? You know, it's the caregiver. So you need to make sure you're treating them 
as a part of that care team, but also then they are on top of that. There's this whole other aspect that's really the most meaningful for them, which is that this is happening in their life too. And it's happening to them too. And their world is being upended just like the patient's. In terms of being solution-oriented, I'll just say from my standpoint as a provider, as an oncologist, there's a couple of things I've tried to do to be better about being inclusive to caregivers. One is I try never to assume now who is who. And what I mean by that is if I walk in a room, I try to get the patient themselves, I think this is important, to introduce who they have with them. So then I learn, okay, so this is my wife, Kristen. But I also get some sense into the dynamics. I get a sense into who I should be talking to, say, if the patient heaven forbid, can't represent themselves. So that's very powerful. The other thing I've started doing, which I hope is useful, is kind of giving people free reign, again, with the patient's permission to record the appointments. I think there's actually some power in that. I hope there is, because I think that time with your doctor or your oncologist is quite precious. It allows people to then listen back, hopefully not as some sort of tedious homework assignment, but in a way then they can think of more questions. And then the final thing, we already invoked the electronic medical record. I think there's actually a sliver of hope in using the EMR to advantage. And I don't know if you've ever done this in Will's case, but we basically have now the secure equivalent of asynchronous email within the EMR. And what I find fascinating, you'll probably agree with this or recognize this, is that oftentimes it's actually a patient's spouse will use that to ask me a question that they didn't get to ask during the appointment. And the timing is fascinating, Krista. I get these messages, I kid you not, like they often will come to like two in the morning. This is clearly someone having a dark night of the soul, wrestling with the often mortality that their loved one's facing and they want to send me a question. I find that really interesting and actually quite engaging to use that as a, a form of dialogue. Yes, I, it's funny you bring that up because I, one time, very recently, as I mentioned before, we're still working on getting his hormones figured out. And Long story short, I ended up writing a message through what you're talking about to his healthcare provider that was overseeing all of this with us, just saying, we've never met, but in, I don't even know how many years, almost 20 years, and two bouts of cancer and cardiac arrest later, have not once ever sent a message to my husband's physician. So that should tell you now where we're starting from here. <laughs> so. And of course, you know, I have to get it all set up. He has to give permissions and whatnot so that it's still confidential and all of that. But once that is set up, that can be a really, really powerful tool for the family member because, you know, I, I can't go to every appointment with him. He probably wouldn't want me to either, especially in the case of like testicular cancer. And, and you know, he gets shots in his butt all the time. Like he can do that on his own. You know, that's fine. We can leave him some dignity. But it does give me an avenue to be able to, like you said, have my questions answered or to be able to say, as you know, my husband's a doctor and doctors are the worst patients. And so when it is necessary for me to step in and say he would never say this himself, he would never bring this to anybody's attention. But let me tell you what I'm seeing. It's not the person I know. So what can we do about it? I think, you know, my, my wife's a physician and, and she does exactly the same thing with me. She's like, Mark, you're not vocalizing this properly to your doctors. And so I'm going to. And I actually think there's something really interesting about that. And again, using, again, rather than just bemoaning these tools we've been given technologically, trying to find a way that we can use them to our advantage. Advocate for yourself, advocate for your loved one, and of course, your family. And there's so much power in having the written or the recorded 
document or file to reference later, because even if you are just fully engaged and present in the moment when you're in the appointment with your doctor, you're not going to be able to retain it all. For one thing, it's a lot of information. It's often information that is outside of your area of knowledge, and it is an emotional situation and uh, emotion can interfere with memory. And so having something to refer to later is step number one, I would say. If there's one thing, just one thing you're going to do for patients and families, put all the information somewhere they can refer to it whenever they need it. And when they can share it with the other people in the family, the other you know extended members of the family, because the caregiver also becomes the message person, right? The messenger. To the rest of the family, right? In the extended community? Yes, absolutely. Yes, exactly. And friends and yeah. And so to have to think again, it's just like, think about what can you do to lighten that person's load because they're already having to take so many things. So if you have something that's a document that you can just share with people who it's appropriate to share with, that makes their life that much easier. And and then everyone's going to have the same accurate information. You're not going to play the game telephone you know, where grandma at the end of the conversation hears a completely different thing than how it started. It's thyroid cancer. Yeah. Now I hear you on that. I actually get to observe this, I guess, from both sides of the table. But as an oncologist who's frequently seeing people, that first consultation, I may have used this phrase the UL before, but I think what happens is what I call the tinnitus of terror. You come in, it's already absolutely, you know, petrifying to meet a cancer specialist. And I think from the moment, sometimes I actually confirm the cancer diagnosis, you can almost see it. They cannot retain the information. This goes back to the recording. They're not hearing anything you say after that word. I mean, again, you're an expert in neuroscience, but I think what happens there is the amygdala kicks in, it's fight or fight, and all of our kind of higher cognitive processing, it just can't access it. And so it's really, of course, then near impossible to retain and repeat it later. Yeah. And specifically with language, you know, one of the things that has really interested me since my experience with the cardiac arrest, yeah, I never studied the neuroscience of trauma. So, you know, this is not my particular area. And I'm not, I would, you're very kind to call me an expert. I wouldn't go so far as to say expert. I, I studied it some, but I was very interested in what I call the quiet place. And I think we talked about this last time and I've written about it, that that's that moment that you're talking about of, you know, you hear that word or, or you see the thing or whatever it is. And in the moment, you do whatever you have to do to survive, right? So I did the CPR and I was on it. You know, I was just very effective at all that stuff. But then as soon as crisis mode was over, that's when it hit me. And when I could finally like relax a little bit, then it was, I just lost my language processing. Like I couldn't really focus on anything anyone was saying. I mean, like I could talk about the logistics of the day, but I couldn't put together like thoughts or very complex sentences or anything. And I couldn't hold a conversation. I couldn't listen to a conversation. I couldn't respond to what people were telling me in one. And I just had this look, you know, my friends said I looked like a ghost. Yes, wide-eyed. Yeah, and I have pictures because that's how I deal with things. Will has comedy, I I document. (laughs) And so I have pictures of myself. When they were saying that, I was like, I need to record what this is. And so, yeah, you can look back and just see in my eyes, like they're just... I wish I could come up with better language now to describe them. But but that is the thing, like it specifically affects language. So if my point was, if you're in that appointment and you're trying to tell these people that they have cancer, their loved one has cancer, and then you want to tell them 
whatever comes after that, whatever the follow-up is, they're just literally not capable of taking that in and processing it and remembering it. And so you're wasting your breath (laughs) and everybody's time because you're going to have to tell them again once they can take that in. So that's where that written information comes in handy. Totally agree. I think the question we should address at the end, and maybe I'll let you go first out of deference, is if listeners were to take anything away from this conversation, what would you hope that would be? I would hope that it would be that if you are a healthcare provider, to just be aware of the co-survivors and the other people in the room, make sure you're addressing them and they're concerned and just think at least a little bit about how this is affecting them too. And and whether there's something that can be done in your clinic, in your hospital, in your exam room to make their lives a little bit easier. And then if you are the co-survivor, I hope you take away that term because that just meant so much to me when I found it because it just, back to the power of language, right? It really encompassed the emotional experience of what it is. I mean, the patient is centered and rightly so. All of this stuff is happening in the patient's body, but it's happening to the co-survivor too. So it helps center them as well as the patient. And so I hope people can find some comfort in that word as well as some, some education and understanding in that word. I love that word. It encompasses everything you said, the co, the togetherness and the surviving together. It's just beautiful. I think what's so resonant to me about this in our conversation is acknowledge the people who are in the room. Yes, of course, our focus is going to be on the patient with cancer, but it's so crucial. And I also like the co-survivorship term, Kristen, because you are more than a therapeutic ally. You are more than a caregiver. You are your own person going through your own experience, just like my mom went through the cancer experience differently, of course, but in parallel with my father. And in fact, again, for long afterwards. So again, so, so grateful to know you and Will. So grateful that you guys have the candor and courage to talk about these things, which are not easy. Yes, comedy makes tragedy a little easier to cope with. And I guess the formula is tragedy plus time. But nonetheless, you are doing so much good. Oh, thank you. I just on the internet, but in the real world. And again, I really, really appreciate you coming on the program again. Oh, thank you. And I could say all the same things to you. So likewise. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. For doctor-approved patient information, please visit cancer.net which is supported by Conquer Cancer donors. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured, and every survivor or co-survivor is healthy. You can make a gift at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.